0: Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. I'm Kira Smith, and today I'm the pleasure of being joined by Megan Claire Chase. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Would you like to introduce yourself and maybe share a short overview of what you do in your work uh, for cancer awareness?
1: Sure. So um, I'm known in the cancer space as Warrior Megzi. Um, I am a soon-to-be seven-year, uh, come October, um, invasive lobular breast cancer survivor. And I'm also a caregiver. Uh, my mother is an ovarian cancer survivor and has a rare blood cancer now. And um, I live right outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, my cat Nathan Edgar. He may or may not be making an appearance. Um, <laughs> so if it sounds like a baby, that's just him talking. Um, but yeah, you know, I I never set out to be an advocate. It just happened very organically because I was just coming up against so many barriers. And so that is ultimately how I entered the whole world of advocacy. And it's because I couldn't keep quiet of what I was going through. And I was like, I can't, I can't be the only one. So that's really how it all started. And now I work in the cancer space. I did ultimately change my career, um, you know, but I realized it's still, there's still a long way to go. <laughs> um, regarding those who come from, I hate to say the word minority. So I say minoritized, marginalized, historically excluded communities. There's a long way to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really excited to see that you recently appeared on the Beyond Cancer episode for PBS. So what was this like? And what did you talk about on the show? <laughs> oh my gosh, Seriously? one of the highlights of like
1: my life. Um because what a lot of people may not know, I mean, I'm definitely on the dramatic side. Uh I've always wanted to be on stage. I wanted to be on Broadway. Um and I even wrote a blog piece kind of going with this of I am on stage. It's just a a different kind of stage and a different audience that I never thought about. Um, So yeah, I was on stories from the stage. And it was great because it was all uh, cancer survivors or those who are currently in treatment or metastatic. And we were all of color. And this was um, a partnership with the organization Count Me In, uh, where they do genetic testing and amplifying black voices. And so we got to go to Boston, I actually saw like I've always wanted to see my name in lights right I saw my face on a billboard outside of Boston's GBH uh TV station like that <laughs> moment I mean I'm still like I can't believe that happened oh my gosh it's it's like I got so emotional just seeing that because I was like I have arrived and I was like wait where am I going what um, it was a big, it was a challenge, actually. So I am someone who blogs, I write, uh, I do, it's a lot from the personal side, essays and things like that. And so learning how to be a storyteller was different in how you write what you're ultimately going to memorize. And this was their first time of having cancer um, survivors and patients do with stories from this stage. And so a lot of us were nervous because of our, you know, a lot of us have some residual or continuing chemo brain. And to memorize a seven minute, uh, you know, story of yourself in front of a live studio audience. Uh, So I want everyone to know that was recorded in front of a live audience um, of about 120 people. So talk about nerves. But it was it was beautifully challenging because it really helped me understand that when you become a storyteller, you have to focus on, you know, very specific elements of your story. because of course, there's so much you want people to know, but it's like, what what did I want people to know right now about my story? And all of us had to drop in some facts about our specific cancers. And so um, the facts that I dropped in um, was A, that lobular um, breast cancer is known as the sneaky breast cancer, but also that um, it's rare in Black women. In fact, there's barely any research (laughs) on invasive lobular and Black women. And then, you know, dropping like a few other facts in there as well. And I got to tell you, it was so interesting and amazing to bond with these other cancer survivors and cancer patients. One had literally finished her treatment like two days before we started recording. And as emotional as that was listening to their stories, we all had some similar experiences of being dismissed, being talked down to by medical providers, our symptoms not being, um, you know, really heard or, or reviewed. And, and instead, it's just like, oh, you need to stop drinking. Well, I'm not a drinker. Well, you just need to lose weight. Well, the whole point is that I've gained weight. I was never an overweight person. Like we all have kind of like that similarity of our providers just not talking to us and dismissing us. And then we get diagnosed with cancer and how it's still a struggle. So um, it was just really an honor. And I got to tell you, when I was told that I would officially be on PBS, and then it's also on World Channel uh, as well, watching myself because what happened, here is is I remember getting walking up on the stage, and then all I remember, I remember saying like my first line, and then walking off the stage. I had no memory of the actual performance, so. I was all like, God, was I even good? You know, like, but then people people were coming over to me and they were crying. So I was like, okay, I must've like hit home somewhere. But I kept wondering, like, why do I have no memory of this? Like, what's happening? It's because I was literally living my dream of just being able to perform. And I was so in the moment that I had no memory. So when I watched it on PBS, it was, to me, it was like the first time. And I actually made my own self cry when I like heard myself telling this element of my story about losing my fertility. And, uh, it's like, I don't even know how to come back from that experience. It's like, I want to do it 24 seven.
0: Right. (laughs) That is absolutely incredible. It must've been such a surreal, surreal experience. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And just also knowing that it's a different audience, right? Because normally um, when I'm, you know, on panels or, or telling parts of my story, it's to others in the cancer space or, you know, medical providers, medical community. This time it's going to reach a different audience and really help educate uh, people of what it's like to, A, get cancer, but then get cancer when you already have so many barriers due to your race.
0: Mm hmm. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's such an amazing platform to be able to share all of that. Yeah. Um, what was kind of the main message that you're hoping to convey to the audience? I really
1: wanted them to know. How hard it is for us to be believed, like we're not being and, and when I say we, I mean, um, black community, um, specifically since I'm a black woman, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, that we're not being oversensitive and it's not our imaginations of these microaggressions that we experience um, in the medical community and just trying to stay on top of our health. And um, another thing I, I wanted people to recognize is that a lot of us, we're mixed with something. We are all mixed with something. And our symptoms may not present the same as our white counterparts. Um, that was my second message I really wanted to hit home is that our our doctors really need to see us, the the person and get to know about like our family history to you know maybe actually recognize that hmm, this could be, you know uh, this could be breast cancer because none of my symptoms were like, obviously, oh, this must be breast cancer. But then when I finally did get the diagnosis and I told my primary about it, and, and um, she was like, oh, well, we don't know if that's what it was really, you know, that that was the cause of it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, and so talking about that, and then the the third point of my story that I wanted people to have to know and have that impact is as Black women specifically, especially because there's such a high, you know, um, mortality rate when it comes to pregnancies, and though I lost my fertility It's like, I want other black women to know that when you get diagnosed with cancer, you ask about what can I do about fertility preservation? Or can I at least have a consultation? Because sometimes they won't even tell you that maybe you should get a consultation because if they see you with kids, they're going to be like, oh, she doesn't need any more. Like they're making decisions for you. Or what happened in my situation is I'm meeting my oncologist for the first time and in the same breath, she's like, you're going to need 16 rounds of chemo. Do you want to freeze your eggs? So all, of course, all I heard was 16 rounds of chemo. And my immediate thought was, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to work through this? Like going a mile a minute. I wasn't even thinking about fertility because, you know, I'm chronically single um, and no human kids. I'm a cat, Nathan, that's my baby. But like, there was no follow up with that. Mm -hmm. There was no nurse calling me like the next day and saying, I know that was probably a very overwhelming appointment for you. First time ever talking with an oncologist. And I want to make sure that you fully understood what, you know, what's happening next. And that's something I really personally, that's one of my advocacy things that I talk about is we really need to have those kind of conversations because you're like a deer in the headlights. And so the way I, I, I ended my, Piece of my story was, you know, I, I will not have a physical legacy and I never really thought about that grief and, and how much that would change me when I had to get a hysterectomy and a bilateral oophorectomy, which means also removing the ovaries. I got like nothing in there that makes me, you know, quote unquote, a woman, all of it had to be removed because my body would not tolerate the current medications to help, um, reduce recurrence. And it's like, it really hit home that once I literally felt nothing inside and how my insides had to shift around because now there was all this room and that was really painful, but I was like, Oh my God, like I, I'm an only child. I have like, Who's going to know I existed? You know what I mean? And so it's like my stories actually do end with me. And that is why I am so open about what I've been through and continue to go through is because I want to I want to know that, you know, I was here and maybe something that I said might have helped, you know, someone else. to have the confidence to ask the questions of their doctors or think about things in a different way and, and know that it's okay to speak up. It's okay to advocate for yourself in the moment and that you're not being too sensitive or crazy when you feel some type of way after talking to your provider, because those microaggressions in, in the medical community is just like how it is every single day of our lives. You know, it, and that's what made me sad, too, is even in cancer land, still have to deal with the implicit bias, the racism and microaggressions.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all those. I'm sure your, your store and your advocacy are an, an inspiration and a, a catalyst for many people. So it's definitely definitely making an impact. <laughs> One additional additional question I'll ask you is: um, We're actually in the process right now of launching a patient advocacy hub on Oncology Data Advisor, um, we're really trying to spotlight some of you know the patient stories and the advocacy work that you and so many others are doing. So, one question I'll ask you is: What are some of the elements or the important pieces that you think would be most valuable for our clinician audience to hear on this site?
1: Oh, I mean, first of all, that's amazing, and it's so needed. Um, I really wish that. I think it's just so important for clinicians to slow down and actually be present with the patient. And a lot of that is systemic, right? Like, you know, we constantly hear uh, whether you're at your primary care physician's office or you're at your oncologist's office, how pressed they are for time, but that's actually really hurting the patients. And it's also hurting us building trust with them, because we can tell a lot of times that they're already thinking about their next patient and not really fully being present with us and how uncomfortable that can feel for someone who, I mean, I'm not a shy person, but it can be really hard for me to like get the courage to ask questions when I'm sitting there in a hospital gown on the exam table feeling really vulnerable. And then I think about those who don't have an education. I think about those where there's a language barrier. Um, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And we really do want to build trust with them. And we want this to be a partnership like it's and, and they I also feel like clinicians need to know that when patients and then also advocates bring up research to them and say, hey, I found this and it's from a reputable source that they actually acknowledge that and say, you know what, let me look into that. I will get back to you because I want to review this more in depth instead of just outright dismissing it saying, well, I highly doubt that that's the case for you. And that was done over in the UK. And I've actually had like those kind of responses from doctors when I've brought up research. And that is just something that's really disappointing. And they really need to be open to that because we know that if they barely have time to see us as patients, how are they keeping up with the latest research?
0: you know? So that's something I, I would add in there. That's great. Thank you. That's definitely something really valuable we can incorporate. Um, yeah. thank you again, um, anything else you'd like to share about maybe, you know, other, uh, other opportunities that you have coming up or what you're doing next? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what am I doing next? I mean, I, I do have some things on the horizon that I can't talk about yet because it's still being, still being planned, but what has been exciting is. Um, the response from the medical community, quite frankly, to my story, um, and also other patients uh, who have watched it, and so I think what you'll see is some more writing being done, making more videos. I mean, I sit on quite a few boards um, as a patient advocate and help with content for um, certain industry uh, partners, you know, and just really making sure that the images that I'm seeing are reflective of the communities um, that they say they're trying to serve. And I don't like to call any community underserved. No, they're unsupported. Mm-hmm. You know, like if there if was support, if the doctors and, and researchers would come out into those communities, I think we would really see a difference because we're still dealing with that medical mistrust. And I still have it. Um, my pain has not been believed for over five years. And so that's something I think you'll continue to see for me is continuing to talk about the needed changes, also change the way that people talk about um, Black people um, and those from unsupported and historically excluded communities. Stop calling us minorities. Um, that, sound, that has a negative connotation. And also, we really need to see our images and your materials. And quite frankly, we, you know, something that I continue to help others work on is how to make the language more patient friendly. And so those are some of the things And maybe I may or may not be officially trying to write my one woman show, like I need to get back on the stage. So we, we hope please, um, that I get another opportunity um, to do that, even if I have to create it myself.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. And I'm looking forward to seeing whatever the next one is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you again for talking to me today. This is really great. I appreciate it. And, you know, maybe it'll help somebody. Absolutely.